Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at the district. Amen, guys. Go ahead and have a seat. We are in a series uh, called Believe, and uh, we are approaching the kind of midway mark through it. Um, And today is, uh, for the most part, going to be the most difficult sermon that you're going to hear um, throughout the series. Last week, we we celebrated the fact that God made mankind. And, and not only did he make mankind amidst all of creation, uh, but he made mankind as the crown jewel of his creation. And so I, I was arguing last week for the fact that you are, uh, not only are you special, but you're very special in regards to creation. Uh, but at the same time, I didn't want you to think you're too special because I also knew what was going to be coming today, um, which is kind of the, uh, as I said, going to be the low lowest points in our series uh, because we're getting to today sin and the fall and so uh, to begin we're going to be answering literally the question uh, why is the world so chaotic Um, why why do we live in a society where everything just goes wrong Um, because in reality there is nothing that is perfect in our society there's no perfect church there's no perfect organization to work for there's no perfect person there's there's no perfect ideologies that are out there no perfect schools regardless of where you went to college there is no perfect school Um, and so there's there's brokenness all around us and today we're going to be answering specifically this question why is um, the world so messed up I mean even just individually not talking about corporations and stuff but individually there's this gnawing in our souls um, this desire to want and need more than what we already have. Um, we're, we're never satisfied in our own souls. Um, and there's a reason for that. Even when it's not necessarily just sin-based, there's a reason for why we always want and desire more. Um, there's this angst within us that wars with our minds and our hearts that this life is just painful, stressful, and wearisome. So we're going to be answering that question. If you, and if you already know why, um, great. Like, I, I'm glad that you already know why. You, you get an A-plus for that. Um, but I think we also need to just continue diving into the reason why because there's so many people around us asking questions, why? Why do bad things happen to good people is, is a common question that's always asked. Or why did my 30-year-old friend have to get cancer? Or why did a young baby die early? Or why did, like, there's so many questions around the brokenness in our world. And so we want to make sure that we are ready to provide answers for them. And so it's very important for us to continue diving into to this idea. Now, having the gospel in view, because we're a church, so we're, we're going to put the gospel out there in front of us at all times. Having the gospel in view, what does the gospel by definition mean? What's the gospel? Just by definition. Good news, all right? Good news. So in order for something to be good news, it has to invade what? Bad news. It has to invade dark spaces. It has to go into bad places in order for there to be good news there. Um, it's meant to be the light amidst the darkness. It's, it's kind of the proverbial rainbow at the end of a thunderstorm. It's the light at the end of the tunnel. It's the diamond in the rough. Like it's, it's good news because it's surrounded by or invading into an area that is all bad news. 
If you were to go to see a doctor and you go for an annual checkup, and as he's kind of checking you out, if he were to come in and say, well, I've got some good news and bad news, which one do you want first? Typically, we want the bad news first because we're hoping that the good news is going to overshadow the bad news, right? We want the good news to kind of nullify what you just said for us that's bad. And so this is what we're going to be talking about today is we want the bad news first before we get to the good news. Because the good news is what we're going to be talking about next week. And so if you were wanting, just kind of putting our cards out there today, if, if you came in expecting to kind of leave here chipper, wrong weekend. All right? Like this is, this is bad news weekend. Okay? This is going to be everything that is producing the reason why we need the gospel to come, why we need the proclamation of the good news. Um, and so this is what we're going to be looking at. We're good? All right. <laughs> and it's not a shock. Um, it's not a shock to a lot of us in here that the world's jacked up, right? Like, I mean, you flip on the channel, and it doesn't take, or the news, it doesn't take long for you to hear someone say, so-and-so's been shot down by 38th Street, and not to call out Kayleen, I know y'all live on 38th Street, but, uh, but like, w we know that, that the world is jacked up. I mean, just last week, or a week and a half ago, as I mentioned in last Sunday's sermon, there was another school shooting up in Spokane, Washington. Um, like, like we, it, it does not take long for us to seek out bad news and to seek out the reality that the world is fractured and broken. It's all around us. I mean, like, you, you, you cannot hide from the reality that um, this is what it is. And so I want to give you some examples of just the brokenness that's around us because I, I, don't, want, I don't want this sermon to just focus on the, the terrible decisions that you make as a human being. Like, that's ten, that kind of tends to be where, where everyone lands with this. But more so, I want you to see not only the fact that there is sin and the fall and, and who ultimately started us down that route, but at the same time, what the implications and effects were of that. So, st sticking with the school shootings idea, um, these are statistics since Columbine in 1999. Hang on. All right, so these are statistics since Columbine in 1999. Uh, 50. That's the number of mass murders or attempted mass murders at a school since Columbine. There's been 50 either mass murders or attempted mass murders on schools, um, school properties since Columbine. 141 is the number of people killed in a mass murder or attempted mass murder at a school since then. 17 out of 50 of those mass murders were conducted by kids under the age of 15. 17 out of 50 of those were by kids under the age of 15. 81 is the percentage of school shootings where someone had information about the shooting before it happened. Just think about that. Like, you're not the person who's actually going and conducting the shooting, but 81% of those shootings had information about the shooting before it happened. So just think about the depravity there of the fact that we either live in a society where we're kind of um, um, just in denial that bad things are going to happen. Well, that in and of itself is depravity. Like we, we should be calling those things out or we should be running to authorities as, as soon as we get any information. Like we, we should not allow this to happen, but 81% of them did. 
270. That's the number of shootings of any kind. So not just mass murder shootings, but shootings of any kind. 270 shootings at a school since Columbine. If you were to do the math on that, that's roughly every three weeks there's some type of school shooting in the U.S. In 2015 alone, there was one shooting per week on either a school or college campus. One per week. Just bringing it down to Indianapolis, just looking at the Indianapolis crime rate um, from 2000 to 2015. And if you have like, well, I think they call it a scalarophobia, which is like the fear of crime. If you've got the fear of crime, just cover your ears um, during this. But murders have increased, this is again from 2000 to 2015, murders have increased from 112 to 148 per year. Rape has increased from 442 to 677 per year. Assaults have been increased from 4,087 to 6,497 per year. Thefts have increased from 18,224 to 25,301 per year. If you run those numbers against the population of Indianapolis, that's literally one in every 33 people will commit some type of theft in the next year. So I'm looking around the room, roughly 33 people. One of you is going to commit some type of theft over this next year. I mean, I know who I would put my money on, but I don't want to call him out. He's behind the computer. But anyways, looking at work-related, um, so these are work-related statistics. Uh, and this was from a Gallup poll. So this is kind of getting away from the idea of just all-out sins that we would focus on as, as big sins. This is just dissatisfaction. This is just looking at your, your work um, experience and seeing kind of that gnawing in your souls that you're missing out on something. 10% of employees would rate their employee experience 10 out of 10. So 90% of employees would say there needs to be improvement in their workplace or their work experience, their employee experience there. 48% of employees report being somewhat happy or unhappy at work. So literally one out of every two people who go to work is unhappy with their workplace. Unhappy that they're walking into that job. 80% of businesses plan to improve their corporate culture. So you're saying like 80% of businesses are tapping into the fact that people don't like coming to work. People don't enjoy working. And we're going to get into why that is in Genesis 3 as we, as we talk about one of the, 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 um, the effects of our sin, one of the curses of our sin that makes work difficult for us. Um, but we're going to dive into that when we get to it. The world you and I live in is not the world God intended it to be. It's not the world God intended it to be. He didn't intend for there to be murder and rape and assaults and thefts. He didn't intend for there to be school shootings. He didn't intend for our work to be wearisome in the sense of being dissatisfied with what we're doing on a daily basis. He never intended that. Everything God created, as we talked about over the last couple of weeks, everything that he created was meant to lead to us enjoying him and also fully enjoying all that we interact with whether that's creation in the way that we steward and cultivate and basically do with the rest of the world what God did with Eden, or also in the relationships that we have. 
the relationships between Adam and Eve were meant to be one in which it was mutually beneficial and mutually enjoying of one another as they glorify God in the process. But then we obviously see that something went wrong. And so I'm going to read from our statement of faith on what happened in our history that slung the world into chaos, and then we'll dive into to Genesis from there. Here's our statement of faith around the sin and the fall. Tempted by Satan, man rebelled against God, separating the fellowship of man with God. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Being set apart from his maker, yet responsible to him, man became subject to God's wrath, inwardly depraved, and apart from a special work of grace, utterly incapable of returning to God. This depravity extends to his mind, his will, and his affections as he is enslaved in the domain of darkness. Fallen, sinful people, whatever their character or attainments, are lost and without hope apart from salvation in Christ alone. Now, as you saw in there, I do talk about a couple of the good news aspects of the fact that apart from um, some type of salvific experience that we um, go through with Christ, we are totally depraved in our minds, our wills, and our hearts. But we're not going to get to that part until next week because, again, today is bad news. So as I said, the world you and I live in is the world God did not intend it to be. We saw that in Genesis 1 and 2 as God created everything. And literally in the Hebrew language, it, it reads as though it's rhythmic. And God created this and it was good. And he created this and it was good. And he created this and it was good. There was shalom there. There was perfect peace there. Shalom is a Jewish word, but we can use it as well. There was perfect peace there. The crown jewel of God's creation was mankind. We read that last week. To summarize, God created mankind with a purpose to steward God's creation and enjoy God in the process. Their work and pleasure were inseparable. God gave man the job of having dominion over all of creation, working it, stewarding all that God had created. Basically, what God did with Eden, we are to do with the rest of the earth. Not only did God create man with a purpose, but God also created mankind to be in relationship as we talk about with Adam and Eve. And this is where I'm going to dive into it um, because, again, this is, this is where we really begin to see kind of the, the issues begin to happen. Now, I do love the part of creation when God makes for the man a helper, um, the woman. Adam was already told that it wasn't good for him to be alone. So as he's naming all the beasts of the field, as he's kind of looking out around him, he may have been looking for a helper at the time. He might have been looking at the elephant and thinking, I don't think that's going to work out for me. Uh, might have been looking at the golden retriever. I don't know if you have a, a golden retriever or a dog at home. Great animal, but not a great helper for you. Not a great soulmate for you. Not a great companion for you. Not a great person to collaborate and lead in your household um, as you work together to, to bring God glory. But when we see God make the woman, literally, as it says, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She, she took part of Adam, or God took part of Adam and made Eve. And what Adam ultimately does when he sees her is he's thinking, okay, I've been looking at cats and I've been looking at dogs. And I, I see her 
And he calls her woman, which literally translates like, out of me, you have been created. You are mine. And I'm not talking about like a misogynistic, like possessive way of mine. But I'm saying like, you are of me. Like you and I are one. There is no other person in which I can interact with in a God-glorifying, God-honoring way that is going to image and reflect what God has ultimately intended human relationships to reflect outside of man and woman being together. So they had relationship with one another, relationship with God in perfect union. They had purpose. Man was to steward God's creation. The woman was to cultivate and nurture it with him. And they only had one rule. One rule. In all of creation, think about it. One rule. Genesis 2, 15 and 17 says this. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Now, I always wondered why the one rule. Why the one rule? I read an article one time by a guy who believed that God putting the tree in the garden was equivalent to him loading a chamber in his gun and setting it on the table and then telling his kids, don't play with the gun. And then he says, doesn't that make God a bad father for doing that? My answer would be, well, it depends on what kind of gun it was. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> now, this is, this is conjecture here. This is just what I think. I always want to point out that when I'm giving an opinion versus this being explicit in Scripture. But the reason why I believe the tree was put in the garden was to instill within us from the beginning even when there's no sin entered into the world yet, but from the very beginning that obedience to God brings about the most joy. Obedience to God brings about, it's not begrudging obedience. Listen, it's the only rule they had. It was not a heavy-handed rule. It was literally, it's not a just don't do this. And so they're thinking, well, wow, we're really missing out. It was don't do this but you can do anything and everything else you want to do. I mean, when you think about that in regards to what we have today, when it comes around to laws and boundaries, like it's, it, it feels 50-50. It feels as though there's, well, yeah, I can do this, but then I can't do this. I can do this, but then I can't do this. Here, it was not a heavy-handed rule, but rather was meant to instill within us that obedience to God brings about the most joy for us, the most glory to Him, the most joy, peace, and pleasure for us. Now, this shalom doesn't last long, literally just two chapters in all of the Bible before it falls apart. And then from Genesis 3 to Revelation 21, we literally have God fixing what we messed up. God restoring and redeeming, but again, that's next week. Genesis chapter 3, picking it up in verse 1. Here's where it all went to hell. <laughs> Best way to say it. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it. Do you remember God telling her not to touch it? We're already adding rules to his rules. 
Some argue that was the first sin. But anyways, it's another sad point. Lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to, be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Now, who's this serpent that's in the garden? I know most of you know who he is. um, But Revelation chapter 12, verses 7 through 9, is one of the best descriptions we have regarding this serpent. So I'm going to read it with you. Verse 7. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Now that event happened sometime during Genesis 1 and 2, as it was in heaven. And at some time during Genesis 1 and 2, as that is going on, the serpent of old, the devil, Satan, the dragon, was cast down with a third of, his, with a third of the angels who were following him, and at this point then enters into the garden to begin tempting Eve. Matthew 13, 19 refers to him as the evil one. John 12, 31 says he's the ruler of this world. Uh, Matthew 12, 24, the Pharisees call him Beelzebub, which means the prince of demons. That's the serpent. That's who we're dealing with in the garden here. And so here was the lie. The message the serpent delivers to Eve is that if she eats of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, then ultimately they'll be like God, which is a great way to tempt someone when all they know and experience is God. If God is your highest being, and if God is your highest standard of glory, don't you want to be like him? And the reality is, is God's already told them, I've made you in my image. You are like me. But what Satan's coming in is elevating it, and not only just saying you're like God, because God's already told them that they are like him, but rather the temptation is not only just to be like God, but to actually be God knowing good and evil, knowing all things, knowing what's ultimately revealed there. They literally want to be God, and they won't die. That's what they're being tempted with. Eve takes the bait, hook, line, and sinker. Stephen Charnock, he's a 17th century English Puritan, he once said, every sin is an election of the devil to be our Lord. Every sin, every choice we make towards sin is an election, it's a vote being cast for the devil to ultimately be our Lord. In that moment, as Adam and Eve are being tempted, they aren't being tempted with good food. Like, that's not what's happening here. There was nothing greater about the food or the fruit that's on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil than the trees that are all around them. We're not talking about filet mignon being on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and sirloin over here to the side. And I love sirloin, but filet mignon is a little bit better. There's not a difference there. There's not as though they were missing out and, and, and ultimately the devil's coming in and saying, hey, you're missing out. This is so much better for you. 
They're not being tempted with good food. They aren't being tempted with pleasure. They have all pleasure. They get to enjoy each other. Like when God says be fruitful and multiply, that's not just procreation. They can enjoy all of each other without any shame, without any nakedness. They get to have unhindered access to the God of all creation in which they're walking with Him in the garden. They're experiencing all pleasure, so it's not necessarily greater pleasure that they're being tempted with. They aren't being tempted with greater knowledge and wisdom. What they were ultimately being tempted with was an exchange of authority, a substitution of allegiance, a shift in control and power. It's a change of lordship is what they're being tempted with. For Satan, this was never about the tree. This was never about him moving God. This was ultimately about him moving God from the throne of of Adam and Eve's lives, and then placing himself on that throne. This was never about Satan giving Adam and Eve something they're missing out on, but rather giving himself something that he's missing out on. This was about the worship from Adam and Eve. Right now they're in perfect union and worship to God, and Satan wants that. He wants their worship. He wants their affections. He wants their desires. He's never after the well-being of Adam and Eve as if they were missing out. That was merely just the tactic he used for himself to become their God. If you don't believe me, look at what Satan tempted Jesus with in Matthew 4. Verses 8 through 10 says, Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you. Now that sounds like he's tempting Jesus with the entire world it's just, I, 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 I'm just surprised that Satan's not smarter than the fact that he knows that Jesus already has all authority. He already rules all of the world, and so you can't give him something that's already his. But what Satan was trying to do is tempt Jesus to do this one thing. Fall down and worship me. Stop worshiping the Father. Stop worshiping God fall down and worship me. That's all Satan is ever after. He's not after our well-being, but rather he's after our worship and our praise. He wants the throne of our lives. Now, one of my questions has always been, where's Adam during all this? We, we always want to jump on the blame Eve bandwagon, but where's Adam? Like he's literally right there next to her. Like, I always have to wonder, like, what is Adam doing? Like, he's just, like, walking around, like, Eve, look at those. Like, I named those. Like, that's a bird, and that's an eagle, and this is a robin. Like, like what what is Adam doing when Eve is sitting there having this conversation with the serpent? Adam is just as much to blame here. This is why we need men to step up and take responsibility for your household. We know, we believe Jesus is our capital H, head of household. He's the one leading and directing and guiding our household. But we view men as lower H, head of household, not in the sense of ruling and having authority over your household, but in the sense of taking responsibility for your household in the way in which you submit to the Lord in the way in which you um, submit to God in the confession of the sins of the household. 
in the way in which you put the beacon out in front of the household and say, this is who we are to trust. This is who we are to respond to. This is who we are to run to. So where Eve may have had the sin of commission in this sense, where she went to the tree and took of its fruit and ate, she chose to do something that she shouldn't have done. Adam suffered the sin of omission by choosing to not do something that he should have done. What he should have done in that moment was, Eve, this serpent that you're having a conversation with right now is leading us astray. This serpent that you're having a conversation with right now is telling us to do something that contradicts what our Lord, what our God has already commanded us. We should trust God rather than trust this serpent. Adam should be having that conversation with Eve in that moment so that they can work together and say, yeah, we need to trust what is right. We need to go back to what is right. And instead, Adam chose to be passive in the moment. Adam chose to be the Homer in Simpsons and say, I'm not going to do anything. And by not doing anything, Adam sinned as well. So what happened because of their sin? Genesis 3, verse 8, picking it up there. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I I was naked, and I hid myself. And God said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, Honeymoon's over at this point. Man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, I'm sorry, I already read that. The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Once Adam and Eve brought sin into the world due to their rebellion at the tree, at that moment, all that God had created, the perfect shalom, the perfect peace, the perfect rhythm from the expanse of the universe to the depths of individual molecules, every aspect of it, relationships became hostile, shame came flooding in, all sorts of anxieties and fears overwhelmed the soul. Death began its reign on earth. This is the reason why we have bad news in the world because sin entered into the world and creation fractured. It fractured. It no longer fits upright. Relationships no longer mesh right. Our view of God now is distorted because we're afraid of him rather than running to him. All of it, everything that was working in a rhythmic and beautiful design is now completely and utterly fractured. And even notice, like, you have this honeymoon period that lasts just a chapter because God says, who told you that you were naked? And and Adam's quick to just throw Eve under the bus. Well, there's that woman you gave me. She gave me some fruit. I don't know. It was just working. She gave me some fruit and I ate of it. I didn't think anything of it. Like, like what is going on here? Notice in this narrative that also nobody will own it. To Adam, it's the woman you gave me. To the woman, it's the serpent. Nobody owns their sin. Nobody takes responsibility for their sin. This creates havoc in relationships if no one is ever to blame 
Relationships will ultimately blow up. Here's the curses that are given to the woman and to the man. Genesis 3, 16 says, To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. My mom's here and will say yes and amen to that one. <laughs> I was at a birthing class yesterday and, uh, yeah. <laughs> it just is what it is. Like women, mad props. Like I, I, I'm glad that God put that on you and not us. Um, <laughs> there'd be three people in the world. But like pain is, and I don't think it's just a pain in childbearing. I think pain all around is amplified. Pain in everything is amplified. Pain in relationships is amplified. Pain in just injuring yourself is amplified. All around, pain is amplified. And then also goes on to say, your desire shall be contrary to your husband and he shall rule over you. That's a very interesting one. Because we would think that desire for your husband is a positive thing. Like, we want our wives to desire us. But you realize the same word that's used for desire there in, in the Hebrew language is, is only used two other places in Scripture, and it's referred to sin seeking out to destroy someone. So what he's ultimately saying there is because of sin entering into the marriage entering into the relationship between man and woman, no longer is the desire of the woman to see the flourishment of the man and to nurture and cultivate and, 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 serve and help him as he seeks to the Lord. But now the relationship of the woman and what she's going to war with within her own heart and her mind and soul is to destroy the husband, is to want to ultimately cut out the husband's legs from under him and, and basically tried to dominate over him and control over him. That's going to cause some friction in your marriage, right? And then the same thing of the idea of the husband ruling over the woman, the complementarian relationship that was supposed to be designed there is never meant for an, a husband to exercise authority over his wife. But part of the curse is that we are going to desire to do that. That we want to hold them under our authority. That we want to hold them as some type of inferior position to us. Is that we want to consider them less than to us. We take the idea of little h headship of the household. Instead of us taking responsibility for sin, we think it's taking responsibility for all the good things that are going on. So rather than it being submission to what's going to cause the household to flourish, rather now it is the rest of the household needs to make sure that I flourish as a husband. Jesus came to not be worshipped, but rather to seek and to serve, to love, to sacrifice himself, to lay down his life. And we as husbands are going to war against that idea every single day because we think we are to take the throne of our household and rule over our family, and that's not the gospel. That's not what the Bible teaches. That's a part of the curse. And then we've got the fact that work is actually now work. Genesis 3.17 says, 
And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Here's what I want you to know. God, first and foremost, God created us to work way before sin ever entered into the world. Work's a great thing for all of us. Work is a great thing. I read an article this week about um, asking people if you were to win the lottery, would you continue to work? And 81% of people said, yeah, I would continue to work even after I won. Why? Because we have that desire. We're designed that way. We're designed to be productive and to cultivate and to beautify the things that are around us, regardless of what area of, of your workplace you're in. Work is a gift from God. There's nothing more dangerous than a man who is bored. Nothing more dangerous than a man who is bored. That's that's why God wants to make sure that that you don't get bored because he makes commands of you to work hard and to increase the provision of your, your family overall, to love and serve your wife, to love and serve your children. When men shirk on that responsibility and get bored, they're always going to replace it with things that are wicked, which will ultimately destroy them. When we put our responsibilities off to the side and seek after our own temporary pleasures, it's always going to be wicked things. Always. Always. A bored man might just be the most dangerous thing. There's always this weird argument where I've met guys who are like, well, what if my wife makes more than me? Well, cha-ching, she makes more than you. That's great. That doesn't give you the excuse to play video games all day. Work. Be productive in the family. This is why 80% of businesses are trying to improve the culture of their workplace because that workplace is producing ultimately thorns and thistles for employees. Every workplace. Right now we're doing the series in our, in our missional groups about uh, work as worship. And <laughs> at least within our missional group, a lot of the conversations have been around the fact that work sucks. That it's difficult. That there's people, I mean, get this one, this is a shocker, that there's people in their workplaces that are difficult to work with. I mean, does anyone else feel that? Absolutely. Well, guess what? That's not going away anytime soon. Part of us being in that workplace with the gospel as our identity is for us to help beautify, cultivate their hearts and their minds so that ultimately the workplace would become more beautiful, God-honoring and God-glorifying. So just because you're in a difficult workplace that, that, that causes a ton of thorns and thistles does not mean that you should then leave to try to go find another one that has less. Because the reality is, it's probably going to have more as soon as you show up. Just like leaving a church to go find a better church, it's going to become less better as soon as you walk into it. I don't know if that's good grammar or not, but I like it. When we enter in, when we put ourselves into anything, it becomes broken. Because we are sinners, because of Genesis chapter 3. Because of us rebelling from God, we have ultimately broken everything that we touch. Everything that we we're called to ultimately cultivate. 
Then you have the big one here, Genesis 3.19. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now you have, because of sin, the reign of death ruling over man. This is what you feel when you feel like something's not right. Maybe that's working itself out as depression or anxiety or fear or enslavement to something, but... But what you're feeling in that moment is that there's something at the soul level, according to Ecclesiastes 3.11, where our souls somehow remember Genesis 1 and 2. Our souls remember because we're designed as image bearers of God. We remember what it's like to be in that place. And therefore now, because we're experiencing the sin that we were born into, our souls have an angst. There's a gnawing there that we want that back. We want it back. And what we're warring with every single day is the fact that death is reigning and ruling over our lives. And we can't wait. We can't wait for the culmination of all things, the consummation of the glory of God coming back when Jesus returns to make all things new, to restore all things back to his beautiful design. That's the last one. So we'll get to that one in a few weeks. But you have the reign and rule of death over man. According to Romans 8, it says, We groan in eager longing with creation for things to be restored. But aren't we also just trying to solve all these things in our own, in our own efforts, in our own ways? Like a lot of times we, 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 we run to the gospel as a last resource because we think we can use our own resources to try to solve all these issues. I mean, I applaud businesses for trying to figure this out. I applaud the fact that 89% of businesses have some type of recognition program for their employees to try to uh, create a better environment. But programs in your organizations aren't ultimately going to fix the issue here. The issue we have with relationships, I mean, just, just doing a little bit of search. If you go on Amazon and you type in marriage, you're going to get 268,000 results for resources on marriage. 268,000 resources on marriage. Why? Because it's a broken entity right now. Just short of 200,000, you have for dating. People trying to figure out the fact that their dating lives are broken. And the process, of how can I do this better because the way it's going for me is not working out well. Get this, for sex, 783,000 results just on Amazon alone that are all preaching and proclaiming the key to a healthy relationship is just better sex. Needless to say, there's, there's a strong market out there for the improvement of relationships. Literally, I mean, you, you can walk in any aisle and you're going to see, like in any store, you're going to see self-help books for trying to improve relationships, trying to fix what Adam and Eve did in Genesis chapter 3. People are making, I mean, millions on all these little secret and, and steps that you can take in order to improve your marriage in 10 minutes. Good luck with that one going to take a little longer in 10 minutes when it comes to just fighting death 
Um, this again, every checkout aisle and every store you've ever been in is stocked with magazines claiming they've solved the issue of death. I just saw one this week. Your, your dream body in just two weeks. Your dream body in just two weeks. Really? I mean, good luck. It's like, seriously, good luck. I, do they even have editors? I mean, your dream body in two weeks? Like, what are you going to do? How? I didn't look, so. I didn't get their answers. Maybe I should go back and read it. Then another one that was right next to it was uh, be 25 pounds slimmer by Thanksgiving so that you can then gluttonously gain 50 pounds at Thanksgiving. Like, I mean, that's the reality. That's what's going to happen. Another one was just simply slim and happy. That's the answer to my brokenness. If I could just be slim, I'll be happy. Amazon has over 1.3 million skincare products all claiming to be the fountain of youth. Every single one of them. If you sell skincare products and stuff, keep doing it. I'm not saying, like, stop. But the reality is, is we are all breaking down and dying chipper of a sermon right and I know like outside the fact that my parents on both sides are here and grandparents here like we're still I'm still one of the old guys here and the reality is some of you are like no I'm great man I'm 25 years old like look just wait two years and in two years your body is going to war against you and injure you while you're sleeping It's just going to happen because our bodies are breaking down. The day is coming where you wake up the next morning and you just hate yourself. It's coming. I don't care how much you Botox your face off. It's going to sag. You're going to age because age is the marker that death is reigning. And we know that there's, like in Scripture, we know that the fountain of youth is not a reality. I'm not saying don't exercise, and I'm not saying don't wear makeup. If the house needs painting. All right, I'm going to move on. <laughs> Romans chapter, th- I'm falling, guys, all right? I'm, I'm right there with you. I'm broken. Let's go to Romans 3 so, so we can... Uh, We can land this plane. Romans chapter 3. That's on you guys, I'm just saying. Picking it up in verse 9. And I'm I'm actually, I'm just going to close out with three different Romans passages here. Viewing the state of man in light of sin. Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 18. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, just in case you're wondering, those are two categories. Uh, There are Jews and everyone else that are not Jews are Greeks. All right? We fall in that category as Gentiles. Okay? Jews and Greeks are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. 
They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is, uh, is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Romans 5 verse 12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, speaking of Adam, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sin. Is there anyone who is escaping this? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Every single person. If you believe you're without sin, you're a liar. Romans 8. Verse 7, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. There was a day in Genesis 1 and 2 where we could submit to God's law. Eat of any tree, don't eat of this one tree. We could submit to that law because we were without sin. Now that sin has entered into the world, we cannot submit to that law out of our own strength. Apart from some miraculous work of grace in which we have an identity exchange, we cannot submit to God's law. Literally says those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Everything I talked about from magazines, from organizations trying to improve their organizations, and these aren't bad things. But what they're ultimately trying to do, not even knowing that they're trying to do it, is restore things back to Genesis 1 and 2. That's all any self-help book is trying to do, is saying there's something within me that's revealing the fact that something's wrong, and so let me provide a solution for the thing that is wrong, and then let me sell it to people. That's what our entire world is trying to accomplish right now. The majority of our resources are being thrown at trying to solve the issue of sin. And the reality is that it is impossible for us, impossible for us to please God. Let's pray. God, we come to you this morning. In view of the sin and the fall, we come recognizing, Lord, that humans, every single one of us, were born totally depraved. We, have, we, we may have been born into a physical life, but God, spiritually, in our identity, in our relationship with you, we were dead. Unable, as dead people, spiritually unable to choose you, to run to you, to love you, unable to please you, unable to see you, God.
Father, we need your presence. We need your pursuit of us. We need that, God, because, because we see the reality of our fallen nature. We see the reality of the fallen nature for those who are around us. God, I, I know that this type of message is not one that is going to lead us to joy. But God, we need to know these things. We need to be reminded of these things because it's so easy for us. It's so easy for us to prone to wander back into the idea that we can fix ourselves. And that's just not a reality. That does not lead us to joy, but rather when we begin down that path and we realize that we can't do it, Lord, all it does is brings on a whole just stream of anxiety and stress and shame and guilt. God, it's, it's a grace for us to hear the fact that we are broken and apart from a miraculous work of your grace, we will never see you. Father, the gospel is bittersweet and we, we know that and this is the bitter moment of it. But God, we have to see our sin before we would ever be able to treasure a Savior. And so let us not be a people that when we advance your gospel in this world, in, in, in our neighborhoods, our communities, our organizations, our families, let us not sugarcoat the fact that we're broken the fact that the people around us are broken. God, we, we need them to see their sin so that they can ultimately see the need for a Savior. And that's what we pray for, God. That's what we plead for. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at